my soundbite for explaining your podcast was just all things deep sea. Is there like a little more you want me to say there? Uh, no, that's pretty solid. Um, yeah, I don't know how this becomes a soundbite, but I'd say it was a couple of deep sea researchers who were getting annoyed at the way the deep sea was portrayed. Uh, and we realized we didn't have a direct voice. We had to sort of talk through media, which always wanted aliens and monsters. So, yeah, I think I think our tagline is uh, um, showing the deep sea as it really is without removing any of the wonder. So in a few minutes here, we are going to hear from a taxonomist of starfish, Dr. Chris Ma from the Smithsonian. And starfish, or at least his particular starfish, come from the deep, the very, very deep sea. And I think that is hard to conceptualize what the deep sea actually means. So I have here uh, someone who knows a ton about the deep sea. Hi, I'm Dr. Tom Lindley from the Deep Sea Podcast. And if you haven't already checked out the Deep Sea Podcast, it is absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's nice to be visiting. It's nice to visit another podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's such a pleasure. So Tom, can you tell us a little bit about what we mean when we say deep sea? It's a horribly broad term that we don't apply very well. So technically, the deep sea starts at 200 meters, but goes all the way to almost 11,000 meters and covers the massive majority of the planet. So it's a massive oversimplification. And we still have this view of it being a separate thing. You know, the deep sea is almost a source of entertainment. It's like there's the lovely sunny bit and, you know, all the fish we like and oh, dolphins and turtles and all that loveliness. And then there's this sideshow act uh, that is the deep sea <laughs> that's like a whole separate thing. But it's the it's the majority of our planet. Uh, I think it's about 54% is abyssal plain, which is the open ocean plains that are about 4,000 meters deep. So when we say it's a blue planet, really it's a deep sea planet. But we still we still have it as like the least favorite child, you know, that sort of creepy uh, habitat that we put to one side. But it is it is most of this planet. It's hard when we then label it as weird and odd when we are the minority. And when we talk about sort of the incredible things that deep sea animals are coping with, that is from a really sort of human centric viewpoint. You know, if we could talk to a deep sea animal and say what habitat we live in, they would find that terrifying. You know what? You can dry out. You can you can you can die of thirst. You, <laughs> you breathe you breathe gas like we would seem terrifying to a deep sea animal. They are most of this planet. So we we are the weird aliens, us clinging to the rocks. So the new species that Chris is going to talk about today, they come from bathyal depths. So 2,000 to 3,000 meters deep. Can you tell us what life looks like down there? That is, uh, I think you've lost light by then. Uh, we've got the sort of photic zone where you still get a little bit of downwelling light. And that tends to go to about 1,000 meters. And that's when we're like down to the last few photons. Um, so that's actually where you get a lot of the creepy deep sea fish, things with big pointy teeth, um, lots of tenderly fins and things like that. All, all the ones that you sort of associate with deep sea fish are actually around 1000 to 2000. Um, you will have probably left the continental slope. So you'll be starting to go down onto the abyssal plains that make up most of the planet. Um, and there can be loads of different habitats there. It could be a, a sandy bottom. It could be uh, exposed rock. Uh, it could be canyons. Um, there's still there's just as many habitats down there as you sort of get along uh, along shallower areas. And that's only the beginning. Um, so we go from bathyal, then we get to abyssal. You know where the abyss comes from. That people argue about this because these are just human humans drawing lines on things, and actually it's a continuum. But anyway, abyssal tends to be from about uh, three thousand to maybe six thousand. 
And then you get the really deep pockets, which tend to be quite isolated. So they tend to be the subduction trenches and they go down to Hadal depth. So that's 6,000 to almost 11,000 meters at Challenger Deep. Uh, and they tend to be like big cracks in the seabed and quite isolated. But most of the planet is these big open abyssal plains. So your Bathiel uh, new sea star um, is sort of on the edges of probably land masses or might even be on a seamount where a mountain comes up into the up off the abyssal plain into a shallower zone. So, yeah, that will be the that will be the setting, probably. That sounds pretty incredible. <laughs> do, you, do you want some sort of environmental factors? Yeah. What else would you like to share? Um depth equates to pressure um and we've been unfortunately with the recent disaster we've been talking about pressure a lot uh, and sort of how people understand it um so water is heavy and the deeper you go the more water there is sitting on top of you um we talk about it as a sort of pounds per square inch kind of thing but it's important to remember that because it's water because it's a liquid it actually squeezes in all directions at the same time it's not a downward force it is a force from all directions so uh I think somebody online was was saying that the Titanic was a myth because how could there still be China down there? Wouldn't it be crushed by the pressure? And it's like, yes, China is fragile. Yes, if you put that much force on it, it would break from above in one direction, but everything is squeezed from all sides. So most of the animals living down there, actually the biggest adaptations they have are at the molecular level. It's the molecules that make them up that really feel that pressure. So a lot of them will have special deep sea variants of the enzymes and proteins and, and molecules that make up our bodies. They have special high pressure versions of those. So even though the animal on the outside might look, you know, a starfish in the deep sea might look a lot like a starfish in the shallows, at the molecular level, it's full of these new and novel compounds. And that's another exciting thing about the deep sea. It might be a source for future drugs, antibiotics, things like that, because all these animals have reinvented all of these compounds that we use day to day. Can you tell us about the things that you've been talking about on your show lately? Okay, yeah. The the show was a little bit of a passion project during lockdown. So we were a couple of deep sea scientists who were starting to get frustrated with how the deep sea was portrayed and even our own work. Like we would do something really cool. We would want to advocate for the deep sea. And then we'd give that to the media cycle and it would become aliens and monsters, aliens and monsters. Every time it would just become this horror show. And we realized we didn't have a voice to reply. We didn't have a voice to say, actually, that's not true. <laughs> so we started putting together this show with the, with the running tagline of have we ruined our careers yet? Are we wrecking our credibility? But no, we're still, we're still going. Um, and we're just really interested in everything deep sea from, from technology. Uh, we've done a few on geology. We recently talked about the deep sea drilling project uh, and a little bit of myth busting as well. So on the geology front as well, we talked about why it looks like there are roads and pyramids and things like that when you explore on Google Earth and actually about how that's, it's how the data is interpreted and things like that. Yeah, we've gone looking for the Megalodon. Uh, we've talked about the bloop, that really crazy sound um, that has been solved. It has been solved, but that's not a fun story. It's a more fun story that a really big animal made a really loud noise in the Antarctic, but it only lasted for like a year or so before we knew what it was, but nobody wants to report that bit. So yeah, we wanted to show the deep sea as it really is without removing any of the wonder, because with a little bit of us showing you the way uh, and sort of bringing you up to speed on the science, it's actually far more exciting than aliens and monsters and horrible things. Um, it's a really cool place and it's most of our planet. So it's a disservice for us not to pay attention to it. 
I completely agree. I enjoy every episode of your podcast that I listen to. And um, I really hope that people will listen to this episode about starfish and then go over to your podcast and get some more context, uh, learn a little bit more about the deep sea, because it is a truly fascinating place. Yeah, come say hi. (laughs) Thanks so much for popping in. No, thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind-the-scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Dr. Chris Ma, a research associate in the Department of Invertebrate Zoology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in D.C. He's here today to tell me about his paper, published in Volume 5310 of Zootaxa, in which he describes a new genus and 11 new species of Antarctic starfish. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy and delighted to be a guest and to discover that there is a podcast about describing new species. I'm so glad. Your paper is really exciting. It's a new genus, 11 new species. Yeah, start us off. Right. So, I mean, the the Valvatid is actually a quite large group, and there are several families within that are some of the most diverse uh, sea star families throughout the world's oceans. The ones that are of particular interest, the group that takes up the greatest page count in the paper, belong to the family Solasteridae. And um, Solaster is probably the best known because um, it occurs in cold water and sort of temperate water habitats. They tend to have multiple arms. So anything that's more than five arms, typically Solaster is about seven to ten armed um, but they occur in Alaska, they occur in the tropics, in deep water habitats, and then they kind of pop up at the other end in uh, Patagonian and Antarctic waters, um, you know, in more shallow habitats. But they tend to steer clear of like tropical uh, shallow water places. But um, the Antarctic tends to have a lot of the... Uh, sort of the interesting other five raid versions of solasterids. Um, so, you know, there's one called Lofaster, which is treated in the paper as well as another genus called Paralofaster. And the, the thing about a lot of these is they tend to show up frequently when you trawl or sample in these waters. And sometimes, you know, they, it's really surprising because considering how, Frequently, you see them in collections and in trawls. You really, oftentimes, you don't really learn a lot about them. And for example, Paralofaster, um, as we'll see, um, you know, shows some really surprising biology. But I can I can safely tell you that it's one of the more commonly encountered things in collections. And everybody just kind of goes, eh, you know, that's kind of nice. And you know, and then they move on to the next. And for years. Well, until I wrote this paper, what they were eating was a mis- was a bit of a mystery, you know, and all you really had to do 
was to look at the specimens and what kind of gut contents they were, what were they eating? And it turns out, uh, you know, by looking at the, uh, the digested bits in their like stomach and such, they were, they're, they're predators on crinoids. And it was doing this kind of work that, you know, I was looking, basically I was cutting these things open, trying to find, you know, their last dinner. And um, it turns out that one of them was filled with juveniles. And I really wasn't sure what I was seeing the first time I saw it. You know, I thought, oh, well, could this be a bunch of small star starfish that it had eaten all at once? But they were all the same and they were they were all kind of oriented in the same direction. And after a while, it became pretty clear. I had just discovered the first brooding species of this genus. And um, and it was in the middle of the night. Well, it wasn't that late, but it was, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock, which is a pretty typical evening for me. No one was around. And, you know, it, I just wanted to do a little dance. I wanted to go running up and down the halls. I wanted to go find someone to tell because because uh, damn, I just found one of the first brooding solasterids, at, at least in Antarctica. Um, and, and it was an internal brooder. It wasn't just one of these, because a lot of times, like Antarctic starfishes that brood juveniles is or embryos or what have you, is nothing new. But typically, or at least the most, the best known species brood around the mouth. Um, you know, so they, like some of the things that you might've seen in the pictures, they keep a big clump of eggs or embryos, which develop into, you know, small uh, starfish. Um, and they're all kept around the mouth, outside or close to the inside of the body. They typically don't reside within the body cavity of the animal itself. And then, you know, and just to make sure that I wasn't imagining it, um, I went and looked through the other specimens. And sure enough, there was at least... One other specimen that had uh, evidence that there were juveniles being brooded inside the body cavity. And, you know, and over time, over the course of several months, I, I investigated other um, museums and I've discovered independently that, for example, there's a separate species that, you know, was in a collection at the California Academy of Sciences, same genus, but it also had juveniles brooded in the body cavity inside the disc. So I wasn't imagining it. It wasn't some weird one-off fluke. Not that brooding is that is not a one-time thing necessarily, but it did suggest that that whole genus has, has these little brooded juveniles. And so this was, you know, part of this specimen's interesting history because the specimen itself, um, you know, is from deep deep water. I mean, it was like 3,900 meters, something like that meters, you know, that is, that is not, you know, it's hilarious to me because everybody, when you, when you get to social media and sort of the more public relations type people, they translate all of that into feet. And I'm like, how does 3,900 meters in feet make that any easier to understand? But 3,000 meters is something like 30 to 40 Washington monuments dropped head to toe into the ocean. So it's, it's just it's like you yeah. can't conceptualize it. Right. Most people can't because it's like, you know, it's like it's like a thousand versus a million, you know, is is a very different thing. So, you know, and people have difficulty conceptualizing that. Um, but 
that aside, the other aspect, which had just been so hilarious to me, was that um, the specimens had been collected in 1966, I think, which was, you know, easily four years before I was born. And and it was just fascinating because, that, you know, there's a long specimen history. And let's just say that it bounced around from museum to museum. Um, they were They were returned to us in 2010. And so they were literally sitting on our shelves for another 15 years before I found them. Um, and, you know, and you have, in, in a lot of ways, you have the pandemic to thank for that because when we were allowed to come back for significant periods of time, I was uh, overjoyed and I hit those collections hard. And I had some projects that were off in the wings and this was one of them um, since uh, getting materials from other institutions wasn't likely to happen right away. So, it was nice to be able to just get into this treasure trove of stuff and discover that there was this hidden treasure like tucked away and they were literally wrapped in toilet paper when I found them. This is one of the many reasons why I love working in museums is because you have a lot of these specimens that often kind of get stored, tucked away, you know, rather than it being some freshly collected thing that you know i saw on video i only saw it alive and you know here's a new discovery from expeditionary uh you know instead here is this hidden treasure here is this specimen specimens because there were a number of them in the collection that were um by my reckoning undescribed and you know and so we get to this paper which has 11 new species and i don't think i even got all of them uh, there were, you know, the more you go into the collections, the more interesting things that you find. When you first started out in science, did you think that this would be your job? <laughs> uh, no. And in many ways, it's still not. Um, well, I guess what I mean is um, everybody told me when I was uh, an undergrad that being a marine biologist would be a bad idea because you couldn't get a job. And if you did get a job, there was no money involved. You know, and I, I I tried to heed all of those. And my early career plans actually were that I was going to go into fisheries. I was thinking about trying to get some kind of, you know, degree in, in um, maybe studying uh, sea urchins or fishes or something where I could kind of, you know, work on these interesting animals in a way that would you know, pay the bills. And, and at a certain point, it just became so obvious that I really wanted to do sort of this natural history angle, you know, intertidal ecology or, you know, or just, you know, education and learning about weird critters. That was the part about it that, that I loved the most. And thankfully, my father and uh, other members of my family were relatively supportive and, you know, because I worked at a shop, my family had a store, so I was able to, you know, support myself, but but they would cut me a break and let me go work. Well, like, you know, I spent one summer <clears throat> as an intern at Monterey Bay Aquarium. That's where I picked up my love of starfish. That's what drew me in. And, you know, and after a while, um, I got hooked into the museum world and I started seeing a lot of specimens that I had only seen pictures of. You know, that's that's been the draw for me is looking at how all these different species 
you know, you can have the same basic body plan, but then there are modifications. And how do the different modifications, how are they influenced by the place they live in? So for example, uh, sand stars like astropectinids, you know, they have spines that are flat and they kind of dig through the sediment that they live in. There are Rasingids, which are these deep water suspension feeding things that hold their arms up into the water. And they have each spine covered by uh, a Velcro invested with little bear traps. That's how they capture food. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see like what, you know, an animal that has been considered as so simple for so long, and yet they do so many crazy things. And the more you look, it's like every time you turn around, there's something new that they do that is that is even crazier. Antarctica has these wonderful innovations. There are such unusual and unique animals. It would be a shame, you know, from from a any number of perspectives, you know, to see that disappear. These are uh, animals that, in many cases, were here before us. And when I do a lot of these Okeanos explorer cruises. Um, yes, it's very cool and, and important to, to document new species, but, um, but like seeing them feeding or, or better seeing them spawning or seeing some new association or behavior, there is that joy, you know, it's just, there's, you know, it's all about the animal. I realized that there are always financial issues and it was easier for me to become a taxonomist or become, you know, a scientist. It was easier for me when I did it than it is for students now. But I mean, I was always kind of a B minus B student, you know, and um, and so, and yet here I am as a starfish expert. Everybody I think has a chance. If this is what they really want to do, then, you know, I, I really think there's room for people uh, to do it. And I hope they do. You used museum specimens in this yes. paper, um, but I, I really want to know a little bit about what field work looks like because you mentioned you mentioned scuba we're in antarctica please um i'm so curious okay yeah so um field work for me is a little different from what i think a lot of people envision marine biologists as as doing because um a lot of people envision sort of that jacques Cousteau scuba diving thing and the truth is that i work on animals that are too deep uh for a lot of that i um tried to do scuba early on in my career. And um, long story short, uh, I got into a fly-by-night scuba school that almost killed me. So I I just sort of avoided doing that <laughs> afterwards. I, I basically, uh, you know, started with shallow water things. But um, yeah, in the late 90s, I was invited to... Um, participate in a groundfish trawl survey in the Aleutians. So I spent three weeks on a fishing trawler in the Alaskan area, um, you know, in the Aleutian Islands. And if you've ever seen that show, Deadly Catch, that gives you a general idea of what my first field experience was like. The smell was incredible. The ship was filled with uh, very rugged fishermen types. But more than that, like you had to help with all of the fish first and then I could take all of the invertebrates, as many of them as I wanted, you know, and so a lot of that involved identifications on the deck of the ship, you know, and I had seen a lot of these species previously from the collections, you know, but I remember once, you know, I was sexing 
these deep water, uh, what were they, zoarsids, I think. They're fish. And you have to do that. You have to cut them open and you have to be careful because they come up from like 400, 500 meters. Internally, a lot of their stuff is all pressurized. And so, you know, one of the other seasoned fishermen guys was like, you have to be careful not to, to cut them here. And I was like, oh, I wonder why that is. And I did that accidentally once. And it turns out that's where the food, the guts are. And you know what they eat? Jellyfish, purple jellyfish. And so I cut that open and the gut contents, which are under pressure, and this explosion of purple goo. <laughs> Never have I called for my mother so, so much. When I was in California, we would go out on the Point Sur, which is a um, research vessel operated by the Moss Landing Marine Labs. And so we would do that on a regular basis with San Francisco State, um, which was a lot of fun. And because I'd interned at Monterey Bay Aquarium, I had seen a lot of these animals on video. So I knew what they were like. And that was my first exposure to how taxonomy is important. Knowing how they're different allowed me to recognize the ones that were coming up in the nets and the trawls. And then, and then, in, and then after that, long story short, I was invited to a, you know, to join a cruise with uh, Craig Young from, well, at the time he was with Harbor Branch in Florida. I got to do some submersibles. And so that was my first exposure with um, the Johnson ceiling. The Johnson ceiling is basically a big um, clear fiberglass sphere with a metal uh, frame. And, um, you know, it's not meant for deep diving. It's, it's, you know, it's not shallow, but it's like 400, 500 meters, something like that. But the great part of that is um, they turn the lights off and they put black cloth over the control panel and everything in the field of view becomes a bioluminescent star field, it, you know, and that's one of those things that you just never forget. But ever since then, I've done, you know, I mean, I've done field work in geology. Uh, so I got my PhD in geology at the University of Illinois, and I've done everything from like look for fossil ossicles in Florida I can safely tell you that some of the most arduous field work I've ever done is looking for starfish ossicles. Um, there was a limestone pit we went to, and it was, I don't know, it was at least 100. And the sun was reflecting off of the white rocks. And, you know, we got some good stuff, but it was just like an oven. The types for almost all the species that were described are here at the Smithsonian. You know, the materials all, it's still being cataloged, but in theory, this should all be... Uh, findable on the database when it's updated and uploaded to the website. Characteristics vary from species to species, of course. Uh, you know, the there are very fine tooth comb characters, things like the number of spine. So a lot of the solasterids tend to have like just fine glassine spinelets on the abactinal surface. And so number of those spinelets, the degree to which they're developed, those are all different ways that you can tell them apart. Uh, some of the other species vary on body shape. They vary with the kind of, you know, like, for example, uh, sort of more cylindrical spines around the edge versus the ones that don't. Uh, but, for example, a whole new genus of sea stars that I put in the paper called Astrotholus. You know, Astrotholus and Campylaster um, are both kind of these flat kind of mound-shaped sea stars and a lot of the characters that you're used to tell those apart tend to be based on um, the granulation, uh, the, the the degree that the body is thickened, 
Um, one of them is a brooder. Uh, the others are not. Um, I fear that brooding as a character is relatively unhelpful. But I mean, a lot of the fine tooth characters tend to be things that I'll be honest and say that, you know, from the museum collections, they're pretty clear. Uh, but <laughs> you get them out in the field and I've had this experience. It can be difficult, but they they tend to be fine degrees of separation based on like granulation, spinelet morphology. Um, there's definitely, a, you know, specimens there that show a distinction from others, uh, you know, um, that I think will hold up over a period of time. One of the things that is one of the key points of this paper is that almost everything in this is from the what's called the lower bathial abyssal zones of the Southern Ocean and adjacent regions. So we're talking about like 2,000 to 4,000 meters. And so a lot of those um, are distinctly different from the shallow water ones. You know, sometimes the spines are more angular or pointed as opposed to round. I think a lot of the differentiation comes with habitat. You mentioned your new genus, Astrotholus. Can you tell us how you picked that name? And then out of the 11 new species, what is maybe like one name that's your favorite? Astrotholus is uh, a combination of astro for star and tholus means, uh, I think it's round or something like that. Um, so it, it it's to separate it from Anthropoda, which was another genus that it had been dropped into out of convenience when it was described in 1940. There's a couple of them that have good stories and I kind of like the animals. I mean, like the one that I've shared just because I like the shape is this one called Astrotholus tumulus, which, you know, like, it's supposed to be cloud-like, you know, like, a, like sort of more puffy. Um, and, you know, and I, I was just really funny because one of my friends pointed out that, oh, that's like the chonkiest of starfish. And I was like, you know, I actually wanted to find a way to call it in, in the specific epithet, you know, to call it chonky. You know, which is the term that kids use these days. But I just couldn't find a way to translate it into Latin. But yeah, part of me is like, you know, even though it's called Campylaster, you know, tumulus, it will always be the chunky sea star in my in the back of my head. Um, but, you know, there were others that like there was one that had a fairly touching story. There was one astrotholus that um, one of my colleagues uh, lost her daughter uh, who was very young um, and she died a couple of years ago uh, in an accident. And so she asked me to name a species after her. And so Astrotholus May, M-E-I, uh, is named after her. You know, but I also named, um, you know, one of the uh, Camp Alaster Sea Stars after Claire Christian, who is the executive director of the Southern and Antarctic Ocean Coalition. That um, is an organization which preserves the treaty stipulations for the Southern Ocean and, and, and Antarctica in general. And she does a lot of good work and we're friends. And, you know, and I just wanted to honor somebody who could do uh, that kind of work. There's a, a big thing these days with people who hate eponyms, uh, species that are named after people. And I'm not in that camp. I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I think following form is an important aspect. Description is usually what you use when you describe a new species so but ultimately like i don't think it's a problem to honor somebody or to name something after anyone i don't know i mean it, it gets kind of a into a silly argument after a while because there's uh, i think there's a fish named after darth vader or something like that and i'm just like well i mean 
okay, so it looks like Darth Vader, but you know, Darth Vader was a monster. I mean, he was he, he was redeemed at the end, but but he was a terrible person. Did you send me another email with yet a third link or uh I think this has gotta be it. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm <laughs> How sorry, do you I've, feel? Been, I, I've just kind of weaved all over the place. It's perfect. I actually think we hit <laughs> everything. Um thank you so much oh. for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Um and and this is Dr. Chris Ma from the Smithsonian Institution, Department <laughs> of Invertebrate Zoology, signing off. Uh thank you, Zoe. Chris's paper. New Genera, Species, and Observations on the Biology of Antarctic Velvatida is in Volume 5310, Number 1 of Zootaxa. See the episode details for a link to the paper, and to learn more about Chris and his work, you can follow him on Twitter, at Echinoblog, or you can check out his blog, which covers all things marine invertebrate, at echinoblog.blogspot.com. A very special thanks to Dr. Tom Lindley and the rest of the crew from the Deep Sea Podcast for the wonderful introduction to this episode. Please go give their podcast a listen or check out their website, armadasoceanic.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. I have a penchant for uh, sound bites. Okeanos loves me for that. <laughs> oh, man, up until I bet. The part, yeah, up until the part I start swearing. So, <laughs> Well... We have no obligation to be clean on this podcast, so you're, yes, I, you're no, good. Podcasts are why I, I mean, I love. I, I would do one if I had more time, but I love. I love podcasts. It's my bread and butter. <laughs>